So, um, we're talking about listening. Uh, listening to non-Christian parables with a Tulsa twist. And so here's what we're starting out with. Here's the thing that I'm going to ask us to do. Is everybody familiar with the uh, hermeneutic rubric of creation, fall, redemption, restoration? This is the way the, the scripture sort of works itself out. In the goodness of creation, in the terror of the original sin and the fall of man and creation, in the redemption offered to us in the finished work of Jesus, our Messiah, and in the full restoration of all things in the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. Everybody's familiar with that four-part understanding of the sort of meta-narrative of Scripture. Here's what we're going to do. We have to listen to one another. We're going to do an improv sketch. You stay in your seat. You stay in your seat. You're going to raise your hand. Everybody raises one hand. And I'm going to start with creation. And then I'm going to point at someone. And that person has to just add a sentence or two. But at some point along the way, as the hands begin to fall, so when you say your part, you put your hand down or you point at someone else and you just leave your hand down. We have to work this out together, a story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration in two sentences apiece, okay? Do you understand it? <laughs> no, there's no example. This is it's supposed to be as awkward as possible. So are you, are you willing to do this with me? And fail, we'll fail miserably together. Sure. So we're all going to start with our one hand in the air. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a one to two sentence story. And then I'm going to point at someone that I may or may not know. And that person will, will add to that story one to two sentences, point to someone else who will add to that. But after you've, after you've been pointed at and you've contributed your one or two sentences, you leave your hand down. And, and along the way, we have to figure out as an organism together, do I, is it now the time to transition from creation to fall? Is now the time... And it doesn't have to be necessarily a Christian story. We're telling parables here. We're talking about parables. So it can be uh, the sin of uh, losing one's temper and flying off the handle and then apologizing to your spouse and kids. And I mean, I don't want to see the pot because I want to see how our story turns out. Are you terrified? Yes. You can ask whatever because we're married. <laughs> Nope, nope, nope. It's a, it's just a parable. We're just telling it together. Totally made up. There's nothing. We don't know how it's going to end up. It's a choose your own adventure. Got it. Harken back to the. So I'm telling you, this is this is coming from a place that'll make sense to you in a little bit. If I stood up here and told you a story, would you have to listen to make sense of it? You would not. But if we have to rely on one another. If I have to know what the person who I don't know is going to point at me, I have to pay attention. I have to know, oh, crap, where, where, where do I have to be ready to go? What do I? So this is the, the point of active listening that we're going to give ourselves to in the next few moments, okay? Gosh, this could go terribly wrong. Let's do it together. So I woke up from my nap on my blanket in the park to birds singing and kids flying kites. Shaylee. Why do you say Because I love you. <laughs> Come on, it's got to be quick. <clears throat> okay, I take it back. Uh, Garrett. It was a beautiful day. Sun was out, and um, they just mowed the grass. You got to point at someone. Straight across. <laughs> A family was out walking their dogs, and 
got off the leash and ran toward me. And I found myself thinking, do I run or do I stand still? Um, um, and in those few moments I waited, it was on me. Oh, you. Oh. <laughs> uh, as I panicked and was able to fight the dog off, I breathed a sigh of relief and was so thankful I was not injured. You got a point. This wasn't the first time I've been attacked by a <laughs> After a rough night on the town. <laughs> If I'd been thinking quicker, I'd have grabbed the pepper spray out of my purse. Ooh. I carry Check. a purse? Yeah. Right. <laughs> but then I thought, maybe, maybe, let me try, try making friends with this dog. So I, I approached the family and said, I, where did you find that dog? <laughs> <laughs> Why is he so mean? Green cat. Yeah, it's joke. Oh. They said, um, my husband found it while he was out working and brought it home to surprise our family. <laughs> <laughs> I was on the outside there. Okay, that's you, Josh. Okay. Um, but I wasn't buying it. <laughs> <laughs> this was the most vicious dog I'd ever seen. I needed to know more. And I realized that I was not getting any answers here. And so I got on my cell phone. Oh, man. Okay. Oh, Jeremy. On my cell phone, I looked up how wiener dogs could become so. <laughs> <laughs> Vicious. Okay. But I found no answers. Okay, we're 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 getting down to our last maybe ten or so. <clears throat> oh, I got a point, uh, Dana. Oh, you took my answer. <laughs> oh. So uh, I decided to stop asking them questions, and I went back to sit on my blanket. Hmm. Red hair. <laughs> my mind was filled with childhood memories of my dog growing up. I mainly used these memories to distract myself from my embarrassment. Hmm. Over being afraid of a weenie dog. <laughs> <laughs> and I started to wonder why I got so defensive in my embarrassment to attack this innocent family. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who's left? Get your hands up high if you're still left, because we got to speed this up. Uh, back to you. That's okay, baby. I don't know where I'm going with this. Oh, we gotta get this. Way. We gotta get this thing redeemed, so, so we can get full <laughs> restoration. We need to do it quick. <laughs> when suddenly a little kid dressed as Batman came and stepped on my leg. Great. Yes. <laughs> Further complication. Yes. You gotta point to somebody, sweetie. Yes. Um. I forgive the Batman child <laughs> and go back to the family with the dog. Okay. Me? Um, I continue to ask questions and uh, 
try to pet the dog, but it bites me again. <laughs> All right, we have three three points left, and we gotta end it because we gotta cover stuff. Oh. I know. Uh, so we're trying to get them. We gotta get this thing restored. Full restoration. New heavens, new earth. Winnie dog in the park. I try to pet it with my other unhidden hand. <laughs> On the end there. And I realize and think about what makes me growl and bite at people. <laughs> Good to have a pastor in the room. Good to have a pastor in the room, kids. Um, and as I'm thinking about that, I hear a, another person join our conversation, and he said, "I'm a dog trainer. Can I help you?" Well, you're the your point is the last point. Oh, I'm done. You're, the, you're the, you point someone else, and this is it. They got to put the bow on it. Who's left? You can. I smile and say how glad I am to see that dog and the family and give it a treat. Great. That's difficult, isn't it? Listening and envisioning and not just seeing the story play out, but seeing the meaning behind things and, and trying to make sense of how this is going along. Now, if you haven't, are there any, you can put your hand down before we ended it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What do you got? And then I woke up. Oh. <laughs> Did anybody watch and appreciate the Apple TV series Ted Lasso? Okay, a few of us did. So I'm going to ask you a question. Be curious, not... Be curious, not... It's the scene when he beats the Rupert at darts. And he says, be curious, not judgmental. Be curious, not judgmental. From the perspective of the average American non-believer, non-Christian, is the church better at listening or lecturing? Are we better at closeness or correction? God the Father, Jesus the Son, prove repeatedly in the written accounts of their interactions with mankind that this is a storytelling God. He takes fabricated events embeds truth within the tale, invites the hearer to step into this story with his questions, and then bang, the trap door falls out, and comically we fall into the arms of grace. The fact that he is a storytelling God carries with it the implications that one, we should be as the church, a curiously listening people. Two, that made in his image, every human is a story-generating machine. And three, Father is a storyteller, Son is a storyteller, the Spirit who dwells in you, Christian, is a storyteller too. So think of the great names in our Christian history that told beautiful parabolic stories Deeply embedded with gospel truth. I'll throw some out. Bunyan. Lewis, whom my son Kaysen is initialed after. This is C.S. Bobo. Um, back there we have J.R.R. Bobo and G.K. Bobo. We have Capon and Beekner and Dorothy Sayers and Flannery O'Connor. All these were beautiful Christian artists who, who wrote truth-filled fiction that made Jesus, at the same time it was fiction, it made Jesus both beautiful and believable. They put forward a compelling and desirable picture that drew the masses to at least a reconsideration of the claims of faith. Now, the imperial church, post-Reformation, post-Enlightenment, continued to, to tell stories, but in the realm of Christendom, that church controlled the storytellers. If you told stories outside the bounds of what the imperial church called acceptable, you were barbecued, literally, or drowned, literally, or excommunicated and threatened. 
So post-enlightenment, post-reformation, other uncontrollable storytellers arose, people of non-Christian faith telling parables to the church and to the world. Here's the question. Did the church listen to what they told? Does the church listen to what they're telling us? And I believe the answer is not usually. We expect them to listen to and engage with our parables, but we don't offer the friendly, kind ability to do the same for them. We label them as dangerous and we burn their books. We label them as liberal and shout over them. We label them as ignorant, conservative, and we mock them. We don't stop and listen. Um, this is, uh, the next few quotes are from this book I'm going to prop up here and, and really encourage you to buy and spend some time with. It's been tremendously helpful. This is what Kate Murphy says. To really listen is to be moved physically, chemically, emotionally, and intellectually by another person's narrative. I picked up a copy of Kate Murphy's phenomenal book, You're Not Listening, in preparation for today's talk. And what I thought I would do is just steal a couple <coughs> quotes, of course, attribute them to her and move on, but I couldn't put the book down. And it's not necessarily a Christian book. I, I don't know where she's at in her spiritual relationship with things of faith, but she's a beautiful woman. I've emailed her back and forth, and she listens really well to even just an unknown fan. There's a growing awareness and willingness in the dying art of listening. And she's helping us to retrain our ears and our hearts to really listen to the stories the world's telling us. This is a, a quote from in the, in the book. In modern life, we're encouraged to listen to our hearts, listen to your inner voice, listen to your gut, listen to the universe. But rarely are we encouraged to listen carefully and with intent to other people. Instead, we're engaged in a dialogue of the deaf, often talking over one another at cocktail, cocktail parties, at work meetings, and even family dinners, groomed as we are to lead the conversation rather than follow it. Online and in person, it's all about defining yourself, shaping the narrative, and staying on message. Value is placed on what you project, not what you absorb. And I think she has isolated in this work what got us to this cultural moment in church and in society, that this is such a rare thing where people of such varied Christian traditions and faith would come and listen not to correct, listen not to challenge, but listen to, to learn and appreciate. And she says this, a few other quotes, and then we'll, we'll move on. She says, to listen is to miss an opportunity to advance your brand and to make your mark. Understanding is the goal of listening and it takes effort. To listen well is to figure out what's on someone's mind and demonstrate that you care enough to want to know. Listening is not about teaching. It's not about shaping, critiquing, appraising, or showing how it should be done. Listening is about the experience of being experienced. And then one more, one last one. And this is mainly for my, my PCA and Reform brothers and sisters. To listen does not mean or even imply that you agree with someone. It simply means that you accept the legitimacy of the other person's point of view and that you might have something to learn from it. We're so afraid in, in my tribe, I can't ascribe this to other people's tribe. We're so afraid that you may have something to contribute to me that I, I didn't get from the people who went before me. Um, and so when we come, not even just in the church, but we come to listen to the voice of the world and the common grace that they may have to offer us as they tell us stories of maybe our own brokenness that we haven't been able to see and hear, can we listen to them without immediately critiquing and counteracting what they're saying? And by not taking the time to give ourselves to them and the time and the potential pain that that may be, we may very well miss what the Lord is doing in the church through the world. The theme of the conference is the kindness of grace. We live in a world that is dying for, of thirst for a cup of, of kindness. That was terrible. I'm going to say it again. <laughs> we live in a world dying of thirst for a sip of kindness. 
It's an endangered species. And the church made alive in the spirit has been given kindness to display the manifold glories of God in Christ to one another. The, the world would do well to see us playing like this together. But then also to the, to the world, to be kind to those who are not kind to us. It was, after all, what I said this morning, the kindness of God that led us to repentance. And I'm convinced that one of the kindest acts that we can do as believers, and one of the kindest postures we can adopt is to listen to those who are unlike us. Not to agree or respond, not to correct and dispute, but to listen to understand. So in his uh, book, Cultivating the Fruit of the Spirit, Christopher Wright says in the entry on kindness, he says, kindness goes beyond reward. It means doing something you won't get paid to do. In fact, real kindness usually costs something and doesn't expect any reward. You do what is kind for its own sake and for the sake of the other person. So kindness is a grace and listening is kind, especially those to whom we, we disagree. So that, that's a lot about kindness. I'd like to move us into the world of, of secular parables for a bit. And then Kaysen's going to come up shortly and, and sort of help fill that out some. Um, as uh, Dr. Slade just pointed out, um, Swiss theologian Karl Barth was uh, quite profound in his contributions to the church. And in his church dogmatics, he writes about this term that he calls secular parables. And I want you to listen to what he says about secular parables. He, he labels them as cultural artifacts produced by non-Christians that nevertheless bear witness to the truth of the God we know best through Jesus Christ. So if you think of yourself as um, an archaeologist, you're a cultural archaeologist. And when you come across a, a film or an album or a piece of painting that... Um, that seems to draw and strike at the, the human experience or the human condition, uh, Bart would say that person is preaching the gospel that they don't know, understand, or believe, but they got there. His friend, um, Jürgen Moltmann, wrote later to help make sense of Bart's ideas. After this special Christian theology, there can and must be a theology of nature about the many lights outside the one light of Christ and the many words of truth outside the one word of the incarnate God, which is Christ. But the relationship between the light, which is Christ, and the many lights of the world is like the rear reflectors in your car. If you switch on the headlights of your car, you can see the reflectors on the car in front of you so that the lights in nature are only a reflection of the light in Christ. They do not illumine anything by themselves, but they do reflect at times the light that is Christ. Does that make sense of the way we can begin to understand these secular parables? So what we're doing here today is encouraging one another to listen carefully and to consider the reflections of the gospel hope of redemption and restoration, even if they haven't loaded those terms or ideas correctly. And it's difficult and it's awkward at times and you're wrong and you get confused just like when we have to rely on one another telling a single story. That's the experience maybe you'll find when you get into trying to tease out some gospel meaning that by, by, by sheer grace and accident uh, got written into an account uh, by a, by a non-Christian. So that's, that's the idea of, of secular parables. The idea of a parable in itself is a, a picturesque figure of speech in which an analogy refers to a similar but different reality. Surely all of us are familiar with many of Jesus's parables, but there are, there are Old Testament parables as well. The book of Ezekiel contains parables in the forms of proverbs and riddles and allegory. Isaiah has a parable as a taunt. He has one as a story. What's maybe the most famous Old Testament parable involving a sheep and a king who, there's a, there's a guy with a lot of sheep and a guy with just one sheep that he loves. 
And the guy with a lot of sheep takes that sheep from the, the, the sheep from the guy that he loves. Who's telling that story? The Nathan. prophet Nathan mm -hmm. to King David. And David does what we're supposed to do with the parable. He drags it into a real experience and says, who is that SOB? Tell me who he is and I'll go kill him. I'm the king. And Nathan has his hand on the trap door switch and says, you're the man. And David goes falling through this reality. And, and Jesus sort of picks up that, that pattern as he carries the, the, the tradition of rabbinic parable teaching. One theologian's briefest definition of parable is an elusive narrative which is told for an ulterior purpose. That's good. An elusive narrative which is told for an ulterior purpose. Purpose. I'm going to give you my definition of parable, which is way more rednecky than that. <laughs> that one's better probably. But I think parables are drive-through doctrine and take-out theology. I think a parable is a true story told in a culturally appropriate context that's meant to serve as a pebble in your shoe. You shouldn't get it right away. You should have, it should cause a little discomfort and a little pain, and you should have to sort of wiggle with it for a bit until you sit down and take your shoe off and find where that thing is that's bothering you. That's the purpose of parables. And oftentimes when you find that thing and you get rid of it, you find out that you were the problem according to the way Jesus tells the parables. There's these artistic illustrations that sometimes cut, sometimes cup comfort, but they always lead the listener to lean in. And, and the listener oftentimes who's, who's making sense of these parables of Jesus gets his finger of condemnation out and he's ready to point it. And again, when Jesus pulls the trap door switch, he finds it doing this. I, I am that man. Now, parables sometimes sound absurd, they sound vivid, they sound strange or outlandish, but they still make sense and connect with the intended audience. So Jesus' parables were almost always parables of the coming kingdom, what it would be like when God again dwelt with humanity, fully restored. The parables the world tells us unintentionally do the same thing. They are telling the various visions of an ideal place and an ideal people. So again, parables don't have to be Christian. They don't have to be centered on matters of existential realities. And not all stories are parables. So Fast and Furious 8, I'm not sure, has any existential connection to gospel realities. Um, may, maybe... Maybe there's more movies that don't have parabolic function than do, but some do. And one that we're not going to talk about today extensively that was based in Tulsa is S.E. Hinton's Outsiders. Now, that's not a Christian story, right? But can it be a non-Christian parable for the church to hear? So what are some of the central themes that come out in The Outsiders? And what would be some Christian ways of listening to it? So what about those greasers? Did they feel gross? Did they feel ostracized? Did they feel less than and marginalized? So if Jesus came to, to, to S.E. Sentence, Tulsa, would he hang with the socias or the greasers? The greasers, no doubt. If, if the New Testament's true, Jesus is going to tick off the socias. And they're going to be the ones to kill him. But if we look at our churches, who's populating our pews, greasers or socias? So there's a way for us to engage with a story like this and go, oh, wait, it hurts when you poke there. So you watch a film loaded with meaning, listening carefully as a person of faith, tease out what's being communicated, find some things you agree with, some things that make you wonder. You'll find lots of things. These are non-Christian parables. They don't share our commitment to uh, language and care. There'll be things that offend you. They're non-Christians. They don't share your hope in a Savior. Their, their Savior is, is vitally different from the one that we have in reality. So they will offend you. They'll, they'll cut against the grain of scripture and tradition. 
And we have to spit out the bones and move on and, and see where the meat is. So when, when that happens, are you supposed to call up the director of the movie you just watched and talk her through uh, her artistic labors? Do you have to write the author of a heartbreaking novel and, and say, this would have been true redemption this way? I don't think you have to do that at all. But the exercise of Christian kindness and listening to the cultural influencers shaping our world is that we would be attuned to express kindness, that we, we understand what you're telling us, that you believe and think and feel this way um, when it comes to the personal level. So if you can think about this in the big sense, when you're, when you're engaging with art on your own time, you can't necessarily call those directors or writers, but when you come across the person who believes that way in real life, if you've had these imagined conversations and you've teased them out, now you have an avenue to maybe get to something of meaning and depth. Kason, will you help us get to something of meaning and depth? Uh, maybe. Okay, come on, buddy. You're going to be good. You're going to be good. Okay, so... I hope you guys know that uh, you picked the long one. You're going to be good. Because uh, we're halfway, and one of the other breakouts left. Like 10 minutes ago. Come on. So... I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to speed. Um, I don't know about everybody in here, but I've noticed something culturally on the rise as of late. Uh, we love simplicity. We love uh, when everything fits in our own little box or is aligned with our base views, and we love when nothing ever really strays from that that box that we have. Um, we we love giving people all-defining nicknames. Like, uh, like Karen or Chad. These are, these are words that we've now used to tell you who you are. Um, we love when uh, politically one group is our savior and the other our damnation. We love uh, making, we, we, we love saying that either we're making progress or we're completely receding. We're going the opposite direction. There can be no middle ground. We're, we're completely removing it. Um, and, and my hunch for why we're removing this middle ground is actually in the question of why we're simplifying everything. And that's because the world is becoming complicated. Everything is becoming very, very, very complicated, and we don't like it. Um, the world is changing, obviously, but as it changes, it becomes far more complex than we like, or it at least has this weird shroud of being complex. Maybe it is simple, but we, we, we think it's more than it is. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying simplicity is bad or complexity is bad or that any of it is a problem, but I think that we're using the simplicity as an escape from reality around us. Hmm. I think that we're using it as an attempt to ignore the world and what's going on and the problems that's happening. And that is not what we should do. That's not what we should do as Christians or as humans. The thing that I think breaks this rule of complexity and simplicity is stories. We seem to like our stories more complicated. Uh, we seem to like when characters are honest and broken. We seem to like when they're, they're equally flawed. Uh, the story needs to break our expectations and surprise us. We need something marginally new, but more specifically, we need something that, that is totally different from everything else that we've experienced. Our stories may not need to be real, but they need to seem real. And they need to fit into natural reactions that we would have, and natural situations that we would experience. Think of well, any TV show you've seen in the last decade. Think of uh, Game of Thrones that blew up seven years ago. That was a story of, of broken individuals. That's a story of true complexity, where everything is moving all over the place. That's not a simple story. Well, then why are we trying to simplify what's going on around us? Why is it okay for us to make most of our lives simpler or want it to be simpler? And why do we like when stories break this facade that we keep for the rest of the world? That's a, that's a question that I'm hopefully going to try to work through. Um, IMDB is an app and a website that collects and categorizes movies and TV shows. It's vast. 
and my and Jason's primary way of seeing and analyzing what the populace thinks about certain films and shows. Um, I went through and read a number of reviews. I skimmed opinions uh, and started to notice a few choice and key words that connect most thoughts and most reviews that are on almost every show and every movie. Um, convincing, familiar, real, drama, affecting, struggle, and heartbreak. These are all things that I use when I define any, anything that I am uh, reading or viewing or experiencing. And these seem to be words and key words that, that people use on a daily basis when they talk about culture and movies and shows. C.S. Lewis talked about this stuff very often. Um, from On Stories, uh, he says that one of the purposes of art is to present what our very narrow or desperately practical views of life exclude. Not to retreat from reality, but rather to rediscover it. Uh, I can say that again because it's, it's really wordy. So C.S. Lewis says that one of the purposes of art, cultural, cultural topics, is to present what our narrow, narrow or desperately practical views of life exclude, the things that we cut out. And that art is doing this not to help us retreat from reality, but rather to help us rediscover it. And I think this is what culture is doing. Is it's not always running from life, but constantly trying to find a way that fit our understanding of the world into these, these stories, these complicated views. And so we are trying to help define the complex lives that we have into complicated stories. Uh, and we're not using these stories as law or as escape, but rather as a parable. Um, kind words to a kid lost in the confusion of life. That these, these stories are there uh, not to berate us, but rather help us reclassify and realign the world. This is what our atheist brothers and sisters are doing with stories. We have the Bible. We have a, we have a Godhead or something that helps us align everything that we see. This to them is their realigning. Mm. This to them is what helps them. This is their Godhead. This is their correction for everything that's a little bit sideways. They came to us as Christians, and they asked us for, for a welcoming invitation into our world, for something that we could help them with, for, something, uh, for, for us to comfort them. And they found us unwelcoming and enlisting. And so they searched for their freedom, for this reinterpretation in what is around us. And they found a comfort and a release in the stories in the same way that we do in the Bible. Just time-wise, skip to here. Yeah, 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 yeah. <coughs> I'm trying. I know, you're doing good. Um, okay, so the best stories come from a place of pain, a place of struggle and a place of sorrow. Creates stories of the same, which we relate to. I, I don't know about everybody in here, but I'm broken and scarred. And when stories share those themes, they connect to me. When, when broken homes weave broken narratives, we see that and understand where it fits. We all have a broken home. And we can understand broken narratives. So I think that's why good stories are starting to come from Tulsa. It's a deeply ruined place with a very painful history. A wilderness a couple hundred years ago got turned into one people's forced home where we forced all Native Americans into somewhere other than where we were taking over. And then we found out it was filled with liquid gold and we fought them back for it. We took back over this home and filled it back with our people and then caused a disparity for everyone that we forced into here. And this, uh, constant violence created a massacre back in 1921 so violent that we haven't fully pieced it together about a hundred years later. We have a place, a home to some people, then a home to another people 
that's been filled with violence for over a hundred years, different sections of lost people, a total confusion. That's a place of stories. That's a place of fairy tales. Violent fairy tales, but fairy tales. Mm. So into our, into our three parables. Reservation Dogs is a coming-of-age story of four indigenous teens that live in northeastern Oklahoma. This is a story about being displaced and forced to live amid, uh, amid wreckage that you're not responsible for and you're completely powerless to fix. There's a hopelessness over the poverty of their reservation lives, an abandonment that fills the minds of these characters and the streets around them. This story is about a gnawing desire to make their way to a home and to a land of promise, a place without trouble where they can live pain-free. California is this Eden to them. It's, it's everything that you could ever imagine rolled into one because they have, no, they have no concept or understanding of what a heaven could be. It's a promise on the horizon, just out of reach, an escape from their suffering. Early on, we read a spirit guide to one of the characters who's sort of the comic relief. Um, but he, the spirit guide, tells our main, well, one of our main teenage characters that running away from his troubles to enrich his dreams is an act of fear, not an act of courage. He's not running to something, he's running away from something. And that he needs to try to shift his perspective of hope and his perspective of fear. And so the story that happens very early on in the series, the story has this slow shift. One from giving into hope and fighting for it. In this story, we find times of, of confession and times of, of weeping. We find acts of redemption and acts of hope. But just like you and I, not everybody agrees in the story. There's pain in the decision, and there's harm uh, that happens to everybody around this kid who makes this decision to stay. So what these kids learn is kind of what we have to learn, that staying is part of the process. That's something that we need to do. This story is written by a native uh, Oklahoman, uh, Sterling Harjo, and a native New Zealander, Taika Waititi. Uh, two men of displaced people who are mysticized and outcast even in their own home. They know the feeling of a lost home, and they fought for and struggled to love their homes. I think they have a better concept of home than I ever will, because they know what it feels like to fight and to feel a broken house falling around them. This is a story that I wouldn't have concept for outside, and this is something that we should listen to. I don't have the concept that they have of home, but I do have the concept of a broken home because I have a disconnection from my father. This is in my blood, the story that they're telling. And this is something that I want to listen to. And this is something that I want to hear. Shouldn't I take time aside and listen to what they have to say? David Lindelhoff's HBO series Watchmen is based on another Tulsa story, one that we've talked about, the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. That's how it starts. That's the opening to the series. It ends with our hero, a recently widowed black female Tulsa police officer, testing a power that she's just gained to see if she can continue fighting a system of racial injustice. Watchmen is a complex story about a woman with a violently broken past and a violently broken family who becomes a cop to deal with injustice through violence from behind her mask. Her past haunts her and her past hurts her. Bigotry, hate, and fear cloud her world and the views of each character around her. Not until the resolution of this story can her pain begin to heal and can she realize that she can't solve her problems by running or fighting her past, but by facing and correcting it. As the story progresses, we meet characters, each with their own troubled ways of seeing the world. Watchmen is a story of pain, and the characters in it express that. One character fears every day for his life. He lives in terror of what could happen. One is desperate for power. One wants a life to themselves, separate of everybody else. 
two different characters are battling throughout the series to prove themselves to the world, their intelligence and their strength. Each of these characters clash, but more importantly, each are driven by their past, by the things that define them behind them. This is something that I do all. Each of these characters sound like me and look like me and act like I would like act because I too am broken and I too live in the past. Isn't this a story worth listening to? Isn't this a thing to set aside your time and pay attention to? Isn't this something that's important? The final Tulsa-based story is Blari, which is a semi-autobiography of Lee Isaac Chung, which was based and is talked about from rural Arkansas, uh, but was actually filmed in, in Tulsa, in and around Tulsa. Uh, the goal of this, sorry, it's about, a it's, it's about a family who moved from California to rural Arkansas to, to farm and live where it's more affordable. The goal of this story is for them to build a good life as lone Koreans in rural Arkansas. But just because you moved doesn't mean that life hasn't moved with you. They've dragged their struggles and their pains with them. And as you can imagine, among a married family who's just made a massive move, tension in the family builds to the point where divorce has to be addressed. And things get very, very tense. And in, this, in, a, in the tensest moment of the story, the husband of the family tells the wife that our kids need to see me succeed at something for once. Hmm. Navigating a new intense existence while being doubted by those around you and fighting every day for your plan to work is a feeling that crosses, crosses social and religious boundaries. This isn't just something that you and I feel. This is something that everybody feels. This is something that everybody can connect to. With the arrival in the story of an unorthodox grandma, things begin to change. She brings with her some treasures from the motherland, spices and seasonings, and some minari, the name of the film, a hearty edible plant from East Asia. It serves as a symbol of faith, where something from home can be brought and something can flourish. Minari can thrive anywhere. Once it's planted, and takes root, it spreads like a wildfire. It goes everywhere. Something that can actually ease pain, it's a painkiller. It can add flavor to soups or to stews, and it gives hope to this family. Does that slightly sound like something else to you? In Manari, Christians are actually the ones that speak hope to this family, although very awkwardly and very imperfectly. But their hope spreads like a wildfire. Their hope spreads like Minari. Hmm. I need a story like that, especially today. Do you? Is this, a, is this a story that you want to hear? Is this something you need to know? These stories take the pain of life or the desire for a better land or the fear of the future and they make it tangible to everybody who experiences them. And whether you relate directly to characters, the situation, or the, straight, the story, you can connect to their environments or their desires or their drives. Stories don't have to be true to be human, but if a story is human, then every person on the planet can catch bits of it that speak to them, Christian or not. These stories help connect us and align us to the gospel. Sorry, help connect and align the gospel to the world around us. They are, in a sense, modern-day parables and we could use them to speak to those who feel confused or lost or unseen. We could use them to tell the people around us that this longing for a better world that you have, this burning hate for injustice, isn't unnatural. It's totally natural. It's something that's talked about on every page of the Bible from Genesis 3 on. You're not alone, and I see you the way that this story sees you. I see you as broken. And as, in, and as needy, the way that I am. And isn't that what every person wants? Isn't that what every human who turns to stories needs? Now, don't get me wrong. This isn't a call to arms, like my dad said, to go out and raid anybody reading a book. This isn't, 
This isn't your task to go and tell them how they need God. This is quite the opposite, actually. If you were looking for an answer, you'll honestly look for it. Listen to them and listen to what they want. Don't just talk to them about what you think they want. Just shut up and listen. Their lives and stories and the stories that they consume and that they tell you are all you need to know about them. All you need to know about their needs and their wants because they're human just like you and I. They want the freedom and the strength and the comfort and the love that comes from the world stories and from the Bible. And we need to just listen and we need to know that. And only after we listen and only after we know can we begin to help them heal and show them the grace that's found in Christ. One last paragraph. So this space that we live in is littered with cultural artifacts, along with recapturing the Christian imagination and the emphasis on telling compelling stories embedded with gospel realities. That's it's something the church has maybe stopped doing and stopped doing well. We need new Lewis's and Tolkien's and Dorothy Sayers and, and, and Flannery O'Connor's. Let's, let's pray for more of those. Let's, let's, let's also recommit to being kind enough to listen. Everyone in this room has been given an abundance of holy kindness in the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's spend it listening to those sheep who have not yet heard the voice of their shepherd. Let's spend it praying for an opportunity to show forth the kindness of grace. Let's spend it with a gentle boldness to engage when the opportunity arises. And let's spend it with a growing sense that Dostoevsky's Prince Mishkin, the idiot, was right when he said, beauty will save the world. Dostoevsky in the book, The Idiot, wrote more of himself into it than any of his other works. And in the battle of atheism versus Christian faith that was going after the soul of Russia, the hero of the story says exactly what Fyodor Dostoevsky believed he was doing by writing these complex stories. He was preaching that beauty will save the world. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you, Kaysen, you excellent writer.